0: The Iditarod Sled Dog Race started up just on Saturday, March 6th. Today's guest is the first woman to complete the Iditarod Sled Dog Race amidst shouts from the spectators that she would never make it. Your positive, positive. 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 Imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI you could be the world to you. Get ready. For your positive imprint. Hello, this is Catherine, your host of the podcast, Your Positive Imprint. The variety, (laughs) the birds are squawking here. The variety show featuring people and birds all over the world whose positive achievements inspire positive thought and action. Exceptional people rising to the challenge. Music by the talented Chris Knoll. Check out his music at... Chris Noll.com. Some of my favorites are Lay Across My Piano, Hambone Boogie, Wide Horizon, Life on Mars, Gumbalaya, and of course Elevated Intentions. And again, that's C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, your positive imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Check out my YouTube channel, Your Positive Imprint. Listen from the podcast platform you're listening from now, or of course, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Amazon Music, Podbean, or any podcast platform. And for listeners who are not so familiar with where to go, then the easiest place to listen is from my website, yourpositiveimprint.com. Under the play button is a subscribe button that will take you to easy links for some podcast platforms. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes with friends and family. Again, under that play button on my website is a share button. Click it and share. Most podcast platforms also allow you to share. And if you'd like to give positive reviews... Which I think the birds are doing, right? I would absolutely love that support. And keep those emails coming. I so enjoy hearing from each of you. Thank you to my listeners who purchased a Rise to the Challenge, What's Your PI shirt? I am so excited and I cannot wait to receive mine as well. I so appreciate that you will be inspiring others to identify their own positive imprint and to rise to the challenge. Those positive imprints are ingrained forever. Again, thank you so very much. Your positive imprint. What's your PI? Well, a happy trails to you. And that is our opening as we sit here today. And I'm actually in Fairbanks, Alaska, uh, sitting next to the person that we are going to hear stories from, Mary Shields. So well, happy trails um, to you, too. <laughs> and thank you. Mary Shields is the first woman to have ever registered for the Iditarod and finished the Iditarod. That is what first inspired me to come and meet her back in 2005. And so I want to sit down and just share some of her story and also share some of the stories that she has since she ran the Iditarod. So first of all, Mary, what motivated you to want to be in the Iditarod back in 1974?
1: Well, Christmas of 1973, John, my former husband, and I traveled to Tanana to visit a friend that worked there in the public health system, and we learned December was not a good time to go traveling by dog sled because it's dark and cold and the trails weren't in and the dogs weren't in good shape, but we had to snowshoe a bit of, quite a bit of the way. We got to Tanana the night of Christmas Day. We spent a week there, and when we came home, the trail was drifted in and we were on snowshoes again. And then when I got back to Fairbanks, I heard rumors of this Iditarod race a 1,000 miles across Alaska, and the Iditarod trail paid people in the villages to break out the trail by snow machine. So that meant you could see a great big swath of Alaska and probably not ever put your snowshoes on. So I called up Iditarod and said, I want to go on your race. And they said, who are you? And I said, Mary. And they said, well, how many dogs do you have, Mary? I said, I had six. Got to have eight. I bought two more. Uh, we borrowed a truck, and I was on the race. Now you have to do a 200-mile qualifying race to race, so I got in pretty luckily. But that was the second year they had the race, and they wanted as many teams as possible, and they did round up 49 teams, and I was lucky to be one of those teams.
0: And I congratulate you for even registering for it, and especially since you said 1973 was the first I did a ride? Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about your experience out on the Iditarod.
1: Well, I'd never gone that far before. That was the longest trip I'd been on. And you leave Anchorage on the first Saturday in March, and we went through the suburbs of Anchorage, and a fellow came out and he hollered, you better turn around now, you'll never make it to Nome. I knew for no other reason I would make it to Nome. I didn't know who he was, and he'd, he'd probably know that I got there, and that was great encouragement to keep going. And in my head, I just broke it down into, well, I can go 50 miles, that's no problem. Then I can go another 50 miles and another 50 miles, and I just broke it into little segments that I could handle. And it just felt, every time I got another 50 miles, I felt like I will get to the finish line. Even though he said I wouldn't, I would. And so Mary Shields
0: has a wonderful tour here in Fairbanks. She invites people to come into her house and listen to tales of her experiences, not just with the Iditarod, but her experiences learning how to live in the rugged parts of Fairbanks, or not just Fairbanks, where where was it that you were living in the, the first cabin? I lived
1: halfway between Fairbanks and Anchorage along the railroad tracks.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, I was 21 years old, and I was wondering what I'm here for and how do I fit into the big picture. I was studying ecology and I wanted to just build a cabin out in the wilderness somewhere and live there for a whole winter and just see how everything fit together. And I had never done anything like that before, so it was kind of a new idea. Um, I didn't finally get out to that cabin until 1969, and it was an abandoned cabin that was left along the railroad tracks that no one had lived in for seven years. And I moved into it, and had a little beaver pond out in front that were good neighbors, and I could see the highest mountain in North America, Denali, just 40 miles away. And I'd been reading a lot of Henry David Thoreau before I went on this adventure, and something Thoreau said about his time on Walden Pond, he said, I went to the woods so I could live deliberately and confront only the essentials of life and learn what that life had to teach so that when I came time to die, I wouldn't discover I hadn't really lived. And that kind of spoke to me. That was what I was looking for And I thought the solitude out in the wilderness would be a good place for me to learn that.
0: That is just so amazing. Well, you wanted to be in the wilderness for one, and you pushed forward to make it and to do everything that you needed to do. So you needed to cut your own wood. You were by yourself.
1: Yes. And I was a city girl. This was all new stuff to me. I didn't know how to do this. When you saw a dead tree, the tree pinches your saw and you if you not don't know what you're doing the saw gets stuck there my saw was stuck for three days for the first piece of firewood I was trying to saw but it was August and it wasn't real cold I got it out finally but I was just learning things trial and error and I made lots of errors but I'm still alive to talk about the, <laughs> the positive things and I did learn a lot about myself and I learned a lot of patience of learning things on my own and I just loved being out there, and today it doesn't seem like it would be such a productive life, but I could just look out at the mountains and write poetry and read books, and it was a wonderful winter for me.
0: I, I know our listeners would absolutely love to hear the story of the tr- the, rail, the train ride down to the cabin and how you actually oh. came upon the cabin. This is just a funny story.
1: Well, I was looking out the windows for a place to build the cabin, and I was going to build it in September and move in in October. And the conductors on the train kind of eavesdropped on everyone's conversation, so the conductor knew what I was doing. And he took me to the back of the passenger car, and he said, I hate to burst your bubble, but you're never going to build a cabin in a month one month of time. And I was devastated because it would take me four or five years to get my nerve up to actually go because I got to Alaska in 1965. But then he said in another um, sentence, he said, well, down the tracks a little bit farther, a place we call Blueberry Hill, there was an old abandoned cabin, just some miner or some prospector or somebody had built it and left it. And no one had lived in it for seven years, and I could move in there. So that sounded like the perfect solution for me. I went to Fairbanks, I got a saw and an axe and some groceries, and When we got to Blueberry Hill, the train slowed down, the baggage car opened up, and they just heaved out all my possessions (laughs) out into the willows. The conductor held onto my hand as I jogged along the side of the railroad car. They didn't want to stop the train because it takes a lot of fuel to start it up again. And when the conductor thought I had my balance, he let go, and the train pulled away. And I just hollered, where's the cabin? He said, it's down the trail. You'll see it. Just go down the trail. (laughs) So I went down the trail, and there was one of the most rustic cabins I'd ever seen in my life. When I opened the door for the first time, two gigantic porcupines came waddling out of the cabin. They'd been living in it. It hadn't really been abandoned. So I looked in the cabin to see if it had those essentials of survival that Thoreau talked about. There was a little barrel stove and a good stovepipe. It had a few holes, but I could patch them up with tinfoil. There was an old gray table and a tree stump for a chair an army surplus cot for the bed and that had all the essentials covered. And then right in front of the cabin was a little beaver pond with a beaver lodge on it, and there were fresh willows. The beaver bring in willows for the winter, and I could see the fresh willows, so I was sure I had neighbors, and then there was that mountain to look out at.
0: What a wonderful experience, and I understand that that is, when you were living at this cabin, that this is where you obtained your very first dog team
1: Yes, my friends Mike and Sally Jones from Fairbanks came down on the train to see if I was still alive, because sometimes people go off on these adventures and nobody ever sees them again, and I was a perfect candidate to be in that category that nobody ever saw again. I was a brownie dropout in the Girl Scout program, (laughs) but Mike and Sally got off the train, and they came back to the cabin with me, and they saw how I was doing things, and they had a lot of suggestions that would make my life safer and better because they had lived out in the bush. And their job a few years previously, they had uh, worked on an archaeology dig up in northwestern Alaska. And when their job had finished, they asked the people that lived in the village if they could stay for the winter and learn how to live the way the Inupiat Eskimo people live. And the village very graciously invited them to stay. So they learned how to smoke salmon and preserve berries they had to assist on a moose hunt and help butcher a moose, and Mike had to learn how to drive the dog team. So back at my little cabin on the railroad, Mike saw me dragging in the dead trees, bringing in the pails of water, and he suggested a few sled dogs would help make my life simpler. And it just so happened they still had three three of their dogs back in Fairbanks, and they weren't using them as a dog team anymore; they were just pets. So Mike and Sally went back to Fairbanks a couple of southbound trains later. The engineer blew the whistle, the car the train stopped, the baggage car opened, a little black dog came out, big red fluffy dog came out, <laughs> another big red fluffy dog came out, an old, old gray dog sled came out, a mountain of Prina Dog Chow and the checkerboard packages came out, and three harnesses. And the only instructions that came with this little beginner's kit was a letter taped on the back of the sled that had everything I needed to know in just two sentences. First sentence, dear Mary, there's nothing to it. Second sentence, just put the dogs in front of the sled, period. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Basically, that's all there is to it. You just put the dogs in front of the sled and communicate with the dogs. I did tie them to the front of the sled, and they got in a big dog fight. <laughs> so I had to pull one off, and then the other two got in a fight, and then I pulled those apart. And then I was crying, I was screaming, I didn't know what to do. Finally, I unclipped all the dogs and they ran down to the cabin. I hauled all that dog food home.
0: Oh no! And
1: then when I got home, I opened up one of the bags and when they'd heard that little string go pop, pop, pop on the top of the dog food, uh, they were right there with me. <laughs> and then I worked with Kiana, the lead dog, for a week all by herself because she knew more about dog sledding than I did, and I figured I could learn from her. And then I and I wanted her to learn to trust me. And then I added one of the red dogs, and then I added the other red dog. And finally, I got all three to go in the same direction without fighting. And then my world just expanded exponentially. I could go so much farther than I had been going on skis or snowshoes.
0: So you actually were taught by your dog sled team.
1: Yes, they knew more than I did. And that little message that just put the dogs in front of the sled. I might have—I don't think I would have put them behind the sled, but you never know.
0: And so, what did you do when, as the Iditarod was getting closer in 1974? How did you learn? Because certainly you didn't learn everything. So, what did you? Well, I had
1: to break those two new dogs into my team, so I ran them with my team, and I didn't have—you know—I just got back to Fairbanks after Christmas, and the Iditarod starts in March, so I didn't have too long to work with them. But I just tried to get some miles on them so they were prepared to go. You can't ask your dogs to go 1,000 miles without working them into it. And most people today put on 1,500 to 2,000 miles before the race to get the dogs in shape. So I just ran them around and got them to know each other, know my old dogs, and uh, just listen to my commands and do what I said. And they were were eager to do, but the new dogs were not that enthusiastic. One of them, Thunder was his name, I was kind of lazy, and if one dog's not pulling, that makes it harder for all the other dogs in the team because they have to make up for the dog that's not pulling. And so did you
0: start out with eight dogs? I started with
1: eight dogs. And that Thunder was, was one of the eight? Yeah. Okay. That was, I think it was Thunder and Lightning were the two new dogs, and that was the okay. smallest team you could start out with. Eight was the minimum you could start with. Most people had the maximum, which was 14 dogs at the time, and I was just looking at it as a camping trip. I wasn't as a racer because... I did have such a small team, and and I hadn't really had that much experience. I just wanted to see a thousand miles of Alaska, and
0: that's how uh, it started. But then you had mentioned something well,
1: went through your head. There was another woman on the trail, Lolly Medley, who was quite a good uh, sprint racer, and we knew each other. We hadn't sprint racer in the sense of that she would run short speed races, oh. train her dogs to run at a lope all the time, where my dogs were just trotters. So I'd go eight or nine miles an hour. She probably went. Twelve miles an hour or ten miles an hour, something more than I did, but we'd meet each other on the trail, one of us would pass the other team, depending on when we started out, and we'd get the therm- one of us would have a thermos of tea and we'd share some tea and talk about the trail, and then she'd go speeding off at the speed that her dogs would go and I kept thinking, boy, she's pushing those dogs pretty hard. I just wasn't really used to sprint dogs, and she probably turned around and looked at me and thought I hadn't realized it was time to go yet, cause I was going so slow we just did it the ways we had trained our teams. And the farther I went along the trail, the more the more times I saw her, uh, the more I thought she was pushing the dogs too hard. And I wanted to show her that the slow way was a better way, which I really didn't know what I was talking about, but that's what I felt. I really wanted to beat her, and when we got to Nalado, an Athabascan town, We came up off the ice, and there was a lot of cheering going on. And I was running about number 25 out of 49 teams. And I know that that's not who you cheer for. But when I got the dogs settled down, I asked people why they were cheering. And that's where I learned there was a lot of betting going on. And the men were betting at which checkpoint the two women would drop out of the race. And the women were betting we'd make it to the next checkpoint and the next checkpoint. So it was probably the women that were doing most of the cheering, and they were (laughs) raking in the money at the same time. And that gave me an idea that maybe, figuratively speaking, there were other women riding in the sled with me, and I should um, shape it up a little bit and try to go faster. So I tried to go faster. I didn't get much faster, but we tried harder. And then we just went from checkpoint to checkpoint to checkpoint till we got to the very last checkpoint on the race. It's called Safety, and it's only 30 miles from the finish line. And all the teams that I'd seen every day that traveled as slow as I did were waiting at safety Safety also. And one of the people in the group said, let's take a five-hour rest stop. The dogs will look terrific crossing the fish line, finish line. Uh, we'll feel a whole lot better if we get some sleep. And those other teams behind us will never catch up with us. I was glad to agree to that. I was exhausted. And you're probably looking at the mass. She only had 30 more miles to go, and she's going to take a nap for five hours. That doesn't make sense. Well, let me tell you why I was so tired. On the race trail, it's quite um, more strenuous than on a camping trip, and I had done more camping trips than racing. On the race trail, you run the dogs for four or five hours, depending on the trail conditions, and then before the dogs want to stop, you make them pull over and rest, and they'll recuperate almost 100%. And then you go another stretch, then you stop, then you go, then you stop, go, then you stop, uh, 24 hours around the clock and the first thing you do when you stop is take the little boots off their feet to look at their feet to make sure they're not getting any cuts in them if you do see any sores you put some antibiotic cream on the racers each carry a first aid kit for dogs and then you might have had a dog that was favoring a shoulder you massage those muscles so when they go to sleep they can really relax and they're not nervous and twitching around and then you want to feed them in the first half an hour but on a camping trip, you melt the snow around a campfire. It might take two hours to get all the dogs fed. You don't have time like that on a race. you're trying to get to the finish line before everyone else. So the racers on the rest stops will melt snow to put in a they'll carry the dog food in a cooler. It's not warm anymore, but it's not frozen. They can scoop it out and feed the dogs. The dogs can eat dinner, and then the dog can sleep the next four hours if you're there for five hours and then the musher. I will get a fire going, melt some snow, fill the cooler up with water and dog food and fish and meat. You add a lot of that to the food. Put it in the cooler so when you stop at the next stop, the food's all ready to go. And then while the dogs are resting, you melt the snow, make the food one step ahead of the time. And then you want to eat something yourself, but you don't have time to you don't have time or energy to even make a macaroni and cheese dinner out of a box. You have all your food cooked at home. If you have a big sponsorship, you have your favorite restaurant cook your dinner, then all you do on the trail is thaw it out uh, and warm it up around the campfire, and then you have a nice nice warm dinner. Pizza is very popular. You're craving high fat content when you're out in the cold day and night. And pizza's all surface area. It'll thaw out around the campfire very quickly. A friend of mine was sponsored by Taco Bell, and he ate burritos for a 1,000 miles. <laughs> and he had an interesting cooking style. He put four or five bu- frozen burritos down inside his parka and just let his body heat thaw them out. And then when he was hungry, he'd fish around till he found a burrito that was above body temperature, pull it out, and eat it as he went down the trail. On one occasion, he had a lost burrito for four days It had slithered around, and it ended up down in the cuff of his snow pants, quite oh, thawed no. out. His oh. dog team found it for him. And I'm sure he never <laughs> oh. ate another burrito as long as he lived.
0: <laughs> well now, so you mentioned that you started thinking about the fact that other women were in your sled. Yep. So how do you think or how or do you think that you opened up the door for other women to compete in male-dominated sporting events.
1: Yeah, it was 47 men and 2 women that year. And people have said, just using the dog sled analogy, that I broke trail for other women. Break, breaking trail means you're on snowshoes packing down the snow. And I accept that that um, adjective because... Uh, It just proved that women could do it, and I was not an experienced dog racer, and if I could do it, then the really good racers could come along and do it. And when I got home from the race, uh, the very first person that came over and asked me what it was like was Susan Butcher, who has now won the race four times. And I told her how wonderful it was and what an exciting adventure it was, and then she raced probably 20 times, and then in the late 80s she started winning, and she won three times in a row and then another time a couple of years later. And she had raised hundreds of puppies. She came up with a line of dogs that were unbeatable by other teams. And when she raced, she was focused on that race 150%. She was a really serious racer. And I admire her, and she'll always be the number one. uh, Well, who knows if she'll always be. There might be some new one. But right now, she's the number one female long-distance racer and will be for a long time, I think.
0: Wow, that's very awesome. So... Lopez, you mentioned an author.
1: Yeah. As you said, I do these tours where I share my life with people that come to visit. And one of the encouragements that told me to do this was a children's book written by Barry Lopez called Crow and Weasel. And in that story, the Plains Indians, when they mature into men, they have to go on a journey and then bring back some new knowledge back to their village. So Crow and Weasel are riding horses, and they're heading north. And they're following a flicker to lead them. And the flicker has a big white spot above their tail. And when they land on a tree, their wings fold over that white spot and it disappears. So a predator following them would chase the white spot. And then when the, the flicker stopped, they wouldn't know where the flicker went. So they were following the flicker also. And they were on horseback. And they had adventures all the way. They got all the way to the Arctic Ocean where they met some um, some Eskimo people that were in a kayak. And the the Plains Indians riding on horses thought the kayak and the people riding it were all one animal, and the Eskimos thought these two Indians on the horses were one animal, and they were frightened of each other. Someone makes friends to talk, and they make a campfire, and they learn to like each other, and they learn things from each other. And then crow and weasel have to return, and they wait a little bit too late to return, and it's snowy, and the rivers are freezing, but not quite strong enough ice to carry them across, and they fall through the ice, and they have some serious challenges on the way home. But they stop at places along the way, and one of the places they stopped just to warm up, I guess, was the the den of badger. And badger represents the wisdom of the old, smart animal. And badger tells them that um, now that they've learned something new, it's their responsibility to take that knowledge home and share it with the people in the village. And then he says something beautiful that um, I might not get the quote right, but he said... Sometimes people need a story more than they need a loaf of bread. And that's our job as people, to take care of each other. We tell stories. And that's what I try to do in my tour. And I can tell sometimes there's people in my group that do need a story more than a loaf of bread. You can just tell from their eyes. I try to make eye contact with people, and um, I can tell when someone... I get a lot of older people that are on their last trip ever, and um, that's pretty significant, or... Just various things that I know the story is just what they needed, and it's easy for me to tell the story because it's my life, and it's easy to share something you love with people
0: that is wonderful, and you your stories you do share, I feel are a great positive imprint for tomorrow and for the future. there are so many children that come through here as well, and Myself, being a teacher, I've bought many of your children's books, and thank you. (laughs) The dogs thank you too. (laughs) (laughs) And we, you and I, wrote a lesson plan back in two thousand five, and and we went through with the students. And so there's a lot of inspiring parts to, you know, you finishing the Iditarod in. Let's see, what place did you finish?
1: Twenty-two out of forty-nine teams.
0: Okay, and it wasn't first, but yet you. You have inspired so many people with your imprint. And then you went on to write books. You went on to do your alternative energy methods of surviving here in this gorgeous
1: area. Well, it's a wonderful place to wake up in the morning. We have a sod roof that insulates the cabin to make it easy to heat, because Fairbanks can get some very cold temperatures with climate change. It's not as cold as it used to be, but it's still pretty cold. And if you just build a house for summer, then you're spending all your money or time sawing firewood or buying oil. Uh, So we put a sod roof on, which is an old style of insulated roof that they used to make back in the old days, and it works beautifully today. It's very easy to heat in the winter, and in the summer it traps the cool temperature in because the basement of the house is built in the ground, and it's about 15 degrees cooler down in the basement. And that sod roof if I don't open the screens that'll keep the cold hot air out and it keeps it cool in the summer and warm in the winter. So and it's just it's not easy to make, but it's fun to make. I planted poppies up on top of mine and it was yellow and orange and white Iceland poppies. Oh the that must spring. be very beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Yes. And our listeners
0: probably heard the dog's well, you have the one dog been walking across yeah. the
1: Chunky Monkey's the loose dog for today, so he's sleeping on the deck here, but he goes exploring and chases the squirrels away, and now he's just taking a little nap.
0: He's a beautiful dog, and now you've had um, an issue with
1: your ankle. Well, it was 2016. I went down to Anchorage to get my ankle pinned because it was really hurting, and when they x-rayed it, there was not enough bone there to put a pin in, and the only thing they could, the doctor, surgeon said he would pin it for me, but it wouldn't last. And I asked him, if I were your mother, what would you do? And he said he would amputate it below the knee. So that's what I had done. And now I'm learning to walk with a prosthesis in a walker right now. And hopefully I'll be back on the dog sled this winter. I'll just have to go places where I know the trail and where it's not real steep or where I can get in trouble. But if I just just get out on the sled, I'll be a happy camper. And you're still doing your tours and you're still doing... I love doing my tours. Oh, and, and, and you're
0: done. doing an amazing job. So, I don't know if we will be able to end with with our howling, I don't know if the dogs will talk back, but we can try it. Happy tails and trails. Yes, happy <laughs> tails and trails, and Mary, it's so wonderful to sit here after all these years and chat with you. So shall we see if the dogs will?
1: Let's try. Usually they howl after dinner, kind of as a thank you, and we, they haven't just had dinner, so I don't know if they'll <laughs> howl, but maybe with Chunky Monkey here he'll help us. All
0: right. Woo! <laughs> shields you're wonderful thank you so much for spending time today here in fairbanks alaska in your gorgeous backyard with your wonderful team you're very welcome
1: come back in the winter and see the real thing thank you so much for the invitation chunky monkey good day
0: Today's audio podcast features Mary Shields. A video episode is available featuring Iditarod sled dog race trainer Kina Linus Skor of Norway. Exciting photographs. Check it out on my YouTube channel, Your Positive Imprint. Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.?